Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A decorated African-American U.S. Air Force veteran, Homeland Security official, university dean, author, and father, is joining us to speak about the, uh, the death of George Floyd with a former now Minneapolis police officer charged with murder about racial turmoil in the United States and the conversation he had with his teenage son about how to respond to and deal with police. I've never forgotten that conversation with Ron Miller because, as Ron said to me, before we actually went on the air with that conversation, this is what African-American fathers have, this kind of conversation with their sons, and Caucasian fathers more than likely do not. Ron Miller is uh, assistant dean at Liberty University. He's the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. His blog is Ron's Reflections. And, uh, Ron, thank you for joining us, and thank you for sending me the uh, the blog piece that you wrote last night when you were thinking about what's happening in your country. How, let me ask, let me start, let me start with this. How are you? How's, how's this all making you feel? Well, I, I need to qualify it, and thank you for having me on, Roy. I need to qualify it first by saying that um, having this happen at any time it ha- brings a sense of, of, of sadness and, 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 and grief. But to have it happen in the midst of a pandemic when uh, so many of us are adjusting to a, a way of life that's unprecedented in our lifetime, um, it, it's, been, it's been a little more disturbing, a little more uh, uh, weighty in terms of its impact than it would have been otherwise. Um, you know, I, I've been dutifully uh, working from home and, and been here since the end of March uh, with a few occasions to go out for things. And uh, so it gives me a lot of time to reflect and ponder, and sometimes spending that time in reflection when you see the world on fire, as we do right now, um, it can take you to some dark places sometimes. Some of the, I'm going to tell everybody this. Some of the best conversations I've had, period, I've been with with Ron. Um, sometimes Ron even off the air better than the conversations we've had on the air, and we've certainly yeah. taken more time, uh, including yesterday. But I may I just quote from uh, the the piece you wrote yesterday last night, yes, and ask you to comment on on these words. And you and I had talked about the fact that we were both alive in 1968, uh, 1967-68. You were eight years old. I was about ten years ahead of you. And 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 you wrote, "Here we are, 52 years later, and I look around at the world on fire and people dying, and it feels a lot like 1968 to me. We arguably don't have a divisive war overseas, but we have a pandemic." And while a crisis that is national in scope once brought us together, it seems that this one has taken an already polarized nation, which some say hasn't been this divided since the 1960s or even the Civil War, and made it worse. Please speak to that. How bad is it? Well, you know, I think back to 9-11, and you mentioned my background in Homeland Security. For those 
listening. I was the chief information officer at the Federal Emergency Management Agency when 9-11 happened. And I recall during that time just how quickly and meaningfully the nation came together in the midst of that tragedy. And I want to use New York City kind of as an example because after 9-11, uh, the, the general sense around the nation was we're all New Yorkers now. We all came together in solidarity with what New York was experiencing in the wake of the terrorist attacks there. Yet here we are in 2020, and once again, New York was the epicenter of a great tragedy. Um, some of the images out of New York City of bodies being stacked up in refrigerated trucks or being buried in paupers' graves outside of the city because they didn't have enough room elsewhere and morgues being overrun, uh, having to use forklifts uh, to put bodies in trucks because they wanted to be concerned about not making contact with the uh, bodies that had been infected. It, these were horrific scenes coming out of New York City. Yet, in this era, in this time, rather than relating to New York, we, 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 we were dismissive of it, we were critical of it. Um, people who didn't want to respond to the admonitions to uh, socially distance, stay home, those sorts of things, they would look and say, well, that's happening over there. That's not my concern. That's not my worry. Uh, aside from the fact that viruses have no political affiliations or state boundaries, um, it was the amount of, of insensitivity to, what, to the tragedy that was taking place in New York that made me realize that this is a different time, a much darker time than it was just back in 2001. And uh, of, of all the people who uh, at one time, back at that time, would go to New York City to provide support, we've had some of that happening too. I mentioned in the article a, a nurse who happened to tend to me during one of my surgeries here in Lynchburg who got on a sailboat with her husband and sailed from the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia up to New York City, and she's now working as a critical care nurse uh, up in New York City, helping them through the pandemic. But for the most part, on a national level, uh, we, we don't think of them as our brothers and sisters, as we did after 9-11. And that, to me, was a very telling uh, example. And then, of course, as we see this playing out across the nation, you can almost draw a line right down the middle in terms of how some states are responding and how some populations are responding versus others. And from a medical perspective, um, that's going to make this fall, I believe, uh, even worse than what we experienced. If you think about it, we were at the tail end of the flu season when the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic struck. Imagine being not only in the midst of dealing with a pandemic for which there's no vaccine, but the flu as well with very similar symptoms, uh, people coming to hospitals, not sure which one of them they have, and having to be tested to determine whether they need to be quarantined or whether they just need to be given uh, care to deal with their symptoms. It's going to be, uh, much, to me, a much more difficult situation than what we have right now. And I don't believe as a culture and as a nation we're ready for it. I mentioned in the article, I think we're at a stage where we're practically ungovernable, and that's scary. In your piece that you wrote last night, the old saying that when white America catches a cold, black America gets pneumonia has never been more true than it is today. And once again, even in the midst of this season of sickness, death, and political strife, the air is shattered by the sounds of violence. 
gunfire mowing down an unarmed black man running for his life from white self-styled vigilantes. Police bullets fired indiscriminately in the confines of an apartment, shredding a young black woman's body in her own home. The gasping, pleading words, struggling to escape the crushed windpipe of a handcuffed and prone black man under the left knee of a police officer. That's uh, that's hard to read, and and I, I'm going to say the same thing to you that I said to a previous guest. This happens again and again. It happens again and again. And this time, I don't know how. I don't know how to compare what's going on now with what's happened before, but the solution appears obvious and should have been addressed long ago. I know those are words, but it's how I feel. Please go ahead, Ron. It's it's really um, it is in, in, it's unfathomable that this is happening again because it's it's almost like a broken record playing over and over again, and somehow we have to find a solution to it. Um, and I've been racking my brain for it, but it it, it um, that old adage that you just quoted um, even even the pandemic hasn't played out equitably. <laughs> Um, I mentioned in the article that um, black people are suffering uh, in, at levels disproportionate to their representation in the population from the pandemic. And so it, it's just a, uh, a truism of American life, one that we all, we all know. I mean, it's, it's become such a proverb that I can't, couldn't even trace where the saying originated from, and I'm always pretty meticulous about that, but it's just something we all know, that whenever there is a problem in America – that it's going to be felt much more acutely uh, by black Americans than any others. And when we look at what's happening right now and the, the aftermath, the riots, which are, are another horrific outcome, and I tried to describe to someone, um, and I said it, this is an explanation, but it's, and it's not an excuse. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you should see the mayor of Atlanta and her speech to the people of Atlanta last night. We played it. We played a few. We played a few clips from that speech today. Oh, you did. Okay. Well, she she was in something else. My daughter lives in Atlanta, and my daughter already already wants to pick up the phone and call Joe Biden and say, "Go talk to her." <laughs> um, but you look at the think of a volcano and imagine this dome building and how this dome just kind of fits on top of this dormant volcano and holds things in and this pressure just builds up over time and keeps building and keeps building and then all of a sudden when when it just can't hold that pressure anymore the whole top of the mountain blows off to me that's what we're seeing right now in terms of all of the violence that's taking place across the country it's not justifiable and i understand the officials and their reactions to it but you're, if you're sitting in a situation where you're seeing this broken record play over and over again, you're probably thinking nobody's paying attention, nobody's trying to fix it, and it's hard to see again. And I, I, lo- I love what Will Smith said in one quote. He said, uh, racism isn't uh, increasing, it's being filmed. Uh, imagine what we don't see um, if there's no one around with a cell phone or or a smartphone camera or something like that. And so I look at this from the perspective of someone who is responsible for training young men and women to go into the public square and serve. And and one of the disciplines I teach 
uh, is criminal justice. And I, I'm asking myself, what do we need to do to change the culture in law enforcement so that this doesn't happen again? And, and by that, I want to be clear. My brother is in law enforcement. He's a correctional officer who heads up a correctional center in Louisiana. Many of my, my friends and associates are in law enforcement and are honorable men and women and who do honorable work. But there, there, there are people who end up wearing the badge, and that's such an awesome responsibility because you are being given by the state the power of using lethal force to keep order. Yeah. You know, Ron, I, there's one thing that I've never forgotten, and, and you talked about it on the air, and I've mentioned it several times today, is when you shared with us the conversation that you had with your teenage son about how to deal, how to interact with police. And remember you telling me, this is something white fathers probably don't do, but African-American fathers, black fathers, do with their teenage sons. And, and we have about two minutes. What did you said? What did you tell your son? Why, why, what made that conversation necessary? Well, the conversation is necessary because I feel like in so many of these situations, just being a young black man automatically puts you under a cloud of, of, of suspicion. Um, you know, you, you could just be minding your business in a store and the, the store security person is following you around to make sure you're not doing anything. Uh, you could be in, in almost any situation. Look at the gentleman in Central Park who was bird watching, and who asked a woman to leash her dog as she was required to do in the park, yeah. and that turned into a racial situation overnight. Um, and so, you know, my son goes out. He's here and uh, at, at, out at night driving. Say he's going to or coming from a party, or he's going to visit a friend. I wanted him to know that if he ever has to deal with the police, that he needs to do everything with with respect, politeness, deliberation. Don't don't escalate the situation in any way, shape, or form. Always go for de-escalating the situation because there could be a situation where you feel you're being wronged and you want to demand that the officer manage the situation in a way that is consistent with the law. And in doing that, you could end up dead. And that that chills me. But it, I can't look at what I see happening even today in 2020, because this is a talk that's been going on with young black men for um, century, <laughs> centuries. I mean, think about the fact that uh, back in the 50s, just looking at a, a, a white woman in a way that some people would misread as as um, romantic, you could be dead instantly. Um, the the this is not this is not a something that just sprung up overnight. It's been with right. us for so long, right? And so I fear for him, and he's a, he's a, he's he's a giant kid. Yeah. <laughs> I say kid, he's twenty five, but he's as polite and as respectful as you could ever want anyone to be. But he's a Ron, I'm sorry to do this, but we've just literally run out of time. Oh, but it's always, I know, we always do. <laughs> we always do. It's always an honor to speak with you, and uh, I'll talk to you again really soon. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Roy. All the best. Ron Miller, you can find Ron's Reflections. That's his blog. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever 
you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 